<clears throat> well, begin, uh, before we begin our study of this passage, uh, what I want us to do is I want us to listen uh, to a short audio clip for you. And it's a piece called, uh, I Thank You, God, uh, for Most This Amazing Day. Uh, if you are an English major or if you remember your high school AP English class, that's a poem uh, by E.E. E. Cummings, one of his more famous ones. And uh, this is a musical piece uh, uh, written in light of those words. And I came across this in high school and this composer. And it's actually one of the reasons why I decided to pursue a music composition in college. And as you listen to it, I want us to pay attention, and you don't have to be musical to appreciate this, uh, but to pay attention uh, to how the music builds up into what we call a crescendo. It gets louder and it intensifies until it reaches this climax and it just resolves. And so I want us to pay attention to that as we listen to this short clip. We can play it for us. Thank you, God, for most this amazing day. When I listened to that, even at a musical level, you could tell what the composer is trying to do, right? As it hits on that word, amazing day, it builds into this climactic resolution as it resolves on that chord. And perhaps you can feel that resolution, right? And the reason why I played this piece for you, it's a heuristic tool because I want us to understand that the passage that we're studying this morning is that resolution. Up to this point, these past few verses, especially chapter 8, and even all throughout the book of Romans, it's been building and building gradually, crescendo into this climactic resolution in these verses 31 to 39. So the things that we've studied thus far, God's revelation, God's justification, our adoption as his children, the Holy Spirit's power in our sanctification, the certainty of our glorification, all these things we've been studying and they've been building and building until this final climactic passage God's inseparable love. One commentator says, it's like as if you're climbing this grand staircase and you finally reached the top. And if you like hiking, if you climb up a mountain after hours and hours of trekking up through this windy path, what do you do at the top of the mountain? What do you do at the summit? You celebrate, don't you? You take selfies. You enjoy what's in front of you. You just take it all in. And this is what we are to do in these verses. We've climbed and we've climbed. And now here it is, the inseparable love of Christ. 
So I pray that we'll be able to celebrate what we have, these things that we have, justification, sanctification, adoption, all because of God's love for you. So I pray that we'll celebrate this biblical truth this morning. I'm, I want us to uh, study this in three uh, headings. First, all things that God does. Number one, God graciously gives us all things. He graciously gives us all things. Number two, God sovereignly gives us suffering. God sovereignly gives us suffering. And thirdly, God gives us this inseparable love. Inseparable love. It's three things that God gives us. So first, he graciously gives us all things. Now, whenever you compete in a sports match, um, usually there are two indicators that will tell you if you will win that match or not, or any kind of battle, any kind of competition. The first way is to look at the opposing team, isn't it? To see who the opposing team are, who are their star players, and that will be an indicator whether you will win the match or not, how good the opposition is. The second way is to look at your own team. To see who is on your side, who are the star players on your team. For example, if you have Cristiano Ronaldo, if you have Messi and Neymar, Pele and Maradona in their prime, it doesn't matter who you're playing, does it? You could play any team in the world and you will win. So let me ask you this. When Paul's talking about this victory in this passage, Where's his focus? Is he so confident because he's looking at the opposition and they're so small and weak? Not at all. But where's his focus? He's looking at his team. And he's saying, if God is for you, it doesn't matter who's on the other team. If God is for you, what can be against us? Who can put any charge against us? What in this life can conquer us? Nothing if God is on your side. That's what he says in verse 31. And he doesn't even waste a breath or energy to even consider who the opponent is because with God, victory is guaranteed. And God is for you. And do you sincerely believe that God is for you, especially in light of the sufferings and tribulations that we've been studying in Romans 8? For many of us, when we see just how difficult things are and how much we fail and how hard life is, that question of, is God for you, that might be shaken up. I see these things happening in my life and how hard it is, and it's natural for us to think, is God for me? Is God really on my side? The answer is yes. And yes, we might be anxious, You know, there's a a story, supposedly, during the Civil War, where a civilian from the North, he was very nervous, and he sought out President Lincoln. And when he finally got to him, he said, President Lincoln, I'm so anxious. I sincerely do hope that the Lord is on our side. And you know what Lincoln replied to that man? He said, 
I'm not anxious at all. I'm just concerned if we're on God's side because that's what matters. And so unless we know that God is on our side, we will be living in anxiety. Is there God who loves me in light of these things that I'm going through? And of course, we undergo that kind of uh, anxiety, especially in light of these sufferings that Paul is writing about. So let me ask us, look at all that's going on in your life right now. And the question is, is God for you? Is he on your side? And Paul writes, yes. Yes, he is. And perhaps you want to ask this question. How can you be so sure of that, Paul? And he writes in verse 32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's his proof. What he's using here is what we call a greater to lesser argument. Mark that verse as such. If you have your app or your writing, mark that, a greater to lesser argument, because it's all throughout Scripture. Paul uses it a lot. Jesus uses it. If you remember when Jesus says, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your own son, how much more your heavenly Father will give good gifts to you? So the logic here is if something is true, and that something is far greater, more difficult, better than whatever you are comparing it with, the answer to both of those things are a guaranteed, emphatic yes. If you can run a full marathon, you can especially run a 5K. If you can play in front of thousands in, in Carnegie Hall, of course you can play in front of a few friends at a local venue. My wife utilizes this all the time. We utilize it all the time. One of the things that my wife found out after we got married is that I turn into a werewolf at night because I eat everything from chocolate to ice cream to noodles to anything in the fridge. And as she found that out, she used a greater to lesser argument this past week. She grabbed our one Haagen-Dazs ice cream and she came with two spoons. And I was slightly offended What makes you think that I don't have the self-control to not eat this ice cream as I took my spoon? What did she use? A greater to lesser argument. If Luke is a werewolf at night eating everything in sight, of course he's going to want some of this green tea ice cream. We know this argument that Paul is using. So, against all anxiety, whether God is for you or not, here's the key. Here's what Paul is saying. Anytime you doubt, anytime you are anxious, is God for me in this thing right now? Look at the cross. Look at it. Because that is his proof that God is for you. That's the greater argument. And anything lesser that you bring up to him, the answer is yes, he's for you. So how do you know? How do you know when you're facing ridicule at work? When you're drowning in depression or or when you're looking at the things in your life and it's just sucking the joy out of you? How do you know that God is working them out for good? Look at that gospel truth. 
to not spare his own son on the cross. And that's the application. May we make that the response to every single thing that we encounter that shakes this truth. Is God for me? Look at what God has done. He sent his own son. Did not spare him. And that language of a spare, what Paul is doing, he's alluding to Genesis 22. That's the story of Abraham and Isaac. When Abraham was commanded to sacrifice his only son, but Isaac was spared. But because Isaac was spared, God provided a ram who was not spared. And if we think about that word spared, here in the language it means to not withhold anything, to give its fullest meaning. That when Christ died for you, it's not as if God kind of held back some of his wrath. He didn't spare any of it. Every single bit of his wrath, he put on Christ, his one and only son. And if that is true, how much more will God graciously give us all things And so whatever you see in this life, God is doing it because it is for your good. It will benefit you. It is a part of these good things that he is giving you. And every time Paul is saying you doubt that, look to the cross. He's giving you what's best for you in his sovereign wisdom. And every time we doubt that, We can look at the son that he gave up for us. I think it was Tim Keller who once said, God only gives you what you would have wanted if you knew what he knew. Let me rephrase that. I needed a couple of minutes to think about the language of that. I I rephrase it as, if you know what God knows, you would ask exactly for what he's giving you right now. If you know what God knows. So whatever you are receiving now in this moment, Whether initially it seems horrible, terrible, and difficult, it is what's best for you and for your good and for God's glory. And where's our faith, our trust? We don't need to see these things end up in good. We need to see the cross. We don't need to see the outcome of this. We need to look at God's sacrifice. It's far greater. Why? Because that's already established. It's already happened. And to think about what it took for God to give up his one and only son for you. I love how Charles Spurgeon, he puts it. He says, let me remind you, Christian, that whatever you may really require, God will not deny it to you, for he has already given you Christ. Think what this gift was to the Father. It was his only begotten, well-beloved son. And he draws this out. He says, for example, say that you have a disobedient son, someone who costs you much and brings you just a little comfort. And he asks, would you like to lose this son? If you saw him in his coffin tomorrow, he says, wouldn't you cry over him tremendously the way that David cried over his son, Absalom, saying, oh, my son, Absalom. He says, only if I had died in your place, wouldn't you say that for your disobedient son? Because he's still your child. and You cannot bear to give him up. And he continues. 
What about an obedient son who pleases you in everything that he does from his youth onward and having grown up to be this adult and as an adult, he becomes your best friend and he proves just how faithful he is to you and how worthy he is of your love and esteem. Can you give him up? And Spurgeon says there's nothing but grief to lose someone as dear as your son. And then he asks, then what must it have cost God to give up his son to die for us? What must God's love be to us to give up that kind of perfect, obedient son? The best we can do, brothers and sisters, in our human minds is to draw this analogy of our love towards an obedient son, which actually doesn't exist, right? That's the best we can do. And Spurgeon says, how infinitely greater is God's love for you who gave up the infinite worth of his one and only son. That's the kind of proof that Paul is giving here. Take a few seconds to think about what that means. That whatever you're going through right now, that our reaction is to look at the cross as proof of God's infinite love for you. And the promise of verse 32, this is the promise. If God did not spare his own son to whom he had an infinite love for you, for you, then will not God also graciously give you all things? What does Paul mean here by all things? For God to give us all things And I consider then, I think there's a clue in verse 32. Do you see the word with him? He graciously gives us all things. I recommend you underline that. With him, with Christ. We know that Christ is the supreme Lord of all things. In Colossians 1, he says, All things were created through Christ and for him. He is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. So what does all things mean? It does literally mean every single thing in the universe is yours. He wrote all things a few verses ago, right? All things work together for the good of those who love him. Paul writes elsewhere. He writes to the Corinthian church, and they're bickering over who had the best pastor, who had the best gifts, and who had the best things at that church And he writes, guys, all things are yours. Whether it be Paul or Paulus or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. Why are you bickering over who has the best this or that when everything is in our possession? So when Paul writes all things, he does mean all things. And we don't have the mind, we we can't wrap our minds around what that means. It's too big for us. But as I mentioned, here's one implication of that. If you have all things, you are in a state where you are no longer in need. Isn't it? If you have every single thing, you are in a position where you don't need anything anymore. Everything we do right now, we do it because we want to get something. Pleasure, comfort, rest, love, financial security. 
Now imagine being in a state where you don't need anything because your satisfaction is fully provided already. What a thought. What an amazing thought to not be in want or in need. That's what God gives us. So look to that cross to know that in all these things that you're facing, that God's love for you is secure. Second point, not only does he graciously give us all things, that also includes how God sovereignly gives us suffering. Suffering. So if if you've been tracking with us in these past few messages, uh, in chapter 8, we see how Paul's talking about the various sufferings and trials and tribulations that we face. And so, in the earlier part of that chapter, uh, he even talks about the frustrations that we have in general, meaning Christians and non-Christians alike. Tragedies, difficulty, terror, disease, cancer, death, things that everyone faces. And he talks about that in in the way that the creation groans, that they're imperfect. They're longing for this perfection to be uh, come uh, through Christ when he returns. So he talks about this generic suffering, but now as he goes into this passage, he zooms in a little bit, and he's not talking about just general sufferings that all of us face, but he's specifically talking about the sufferings as a Christian, as a believer. He says these sufferings, the trials and tribulations, the persecution, there it is, famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. And in verse 36, he says, as it is written, for your sake, for God's sake, for Christ's sake, only Christians can say that. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And here, I want us to uh, take a step back and to remember uh, who Paul is writing to. He's writing to these early Christians in the city of Rome who faced much persecution. As many of you know, um, Joanna and I had the privilege of visiting that city a few weeks ago, and this was actually my second time. And being such, uh, I actually took some time to study the history of some of the buildings and the architecture. And one of the things that I came across as I was reading and encounter was that a lot of these Christian structures in Rome, and there's many churches, many buildings uh, with the cross, many of them, they weren't originally Christian structures. Many of them were transformed into Christian buildings. But many of them were initially temples, shrines built for their Roman gods and goddesses. For example, uh, the Pantheon, I think I have a picture here, The Pantheon, if you go now, it's a place where you can have worship service. But it wasn't always like that. The word in itself, Pantheon, Pan means many, Theon means gods, a place where many gods were worshipped but transformed. If you go to the Colosseum, the first thing you're going to see is this huge cross at the front of the circle. But it's ironic because that was the very place where thousands of Christians were martyred devoured by lions. And it's a stark reminder that Rome wasn't always a Christian city, that in its early beginnings, that it was a place where much persecution happened for these Christians. And that's to whom Paul is writing this letter to. 
That's why he cites when he says, as it is written. He's citing Psalm 44. And in the context of that psalm, if you go back in time with me, the writer of this psalm, he's writing on behalf of Israel. And the state is that Israel, they're being defeated by all these nations, being conquered, being put to shame. And now he knows and he has enough faith to know that unless God is fighting for them, that he has no chance. He says, it is not our bow or our sword that guarantees victory, but you must lead us into battle, O Lord. But what he sees is that he's undergoing these defeats. Now, this is where this psalm is unique. Later on in verse 17, he says, but God, we have been faithful to your covenant. We have been obedient, and yet you still do not go before us in our battles. Now, the psalmist, he's not saying that he's sinless. What he's saying is that the nation of Israel at that time, that they were worshiping Yahweh, that they weren't going to other gods, but yet and still of that, they were undergoing persecution and suffering. And at that point of Israel's history, Paul, he draws reference to that to get this idea, and this is the key. Just because we're obedient and righteous, it doesn't guarantee that there will be no suffering, that there will be no persecution. Because he says, for God's sake, for your sake in the psalm, we are suffering all the day long. We are being killed like sheep to the slaughter. I think there's a type of thinking and much so in throughout the old testament where they receive a lot of punishment and the consequences for their disobedience to the lord but in this psalm that's not the case they were actually being obedient they're holding true to god's covenant and yet still persecution came and why does paul reference that because he's getting this idea that as a christian suffering and your obedience and god's love for you they're not mutually exclusive Suffering doesn't come only because you're being disobedient. He says, as a matter of fact, even if you are in God's hand, suffering will indeed come. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. That's the key here. That's what these Roman Christians were facing. They're asking this question, am I doing something wrong here? We're worshiping our Lord, and I know it's not perfect. It sounds like us, right? I know I'm not the greatest father or mother or Christian, but I'm trying and, you know, my heart is there, but I see this thing. Paul says, don't think of those things as mutually exclusive because even if you are in God's favor and in his love, if God is for you, these things will still come because it is for Christ's sake that you're experiencing these things. And in this suffering, I want to give two things, two pointers about what this suffering means. Two things. The first is, you know, when we read such things in this context, persecution, we know that persecution can come in various ways in our lifetime, right? For us, maybe we might not get that promotion at work because we refuse to cut corners. We want to be uh, honest in our work. Perhaps we might get ridiculed or people might look down on us. Perhaps because of your faith in Jesus, on what you do on Sundays, the way that you do raise your kids, the way that you do attend school and act. Maybe in a minor type of way, maybe we don't get the zoning issues right for a building and we can't worship in the place of our choosing. 
as a minor form of persecution. And yes, these are all forms of persecution for Christ's sake. But when Paul's saying famine, nakedness, sword, and being slaughtered, I don't want us to think that these things are just hyperboles, that these are just hypothetical situations, just because you and I might not see it on a daily basis, because they happen very much for these Roman Christians, as I saw in Rome. And as a matter of fact, this is going on right now all across the world. It is not a hyperbole. It's not a hypothetical situation. People are being slaughtered and killed because of Christ. And so the key is, is if we're not supposed to think that this can't happen to us, that this does happen to Christians, perhaps not to every individual, but it's something that shouldn't surprise us if it does come to you. It's not a hypothetical situation that Paul's writing about. And the second thing is, The key here is for Christ's sake. And this does include us. Because it means that the sacrifices that you make because of Jesus and what he teaches in this Bible, that this includes you giving up your comfort, for example. Giving up that 30 minutes of rest on that couch. And when you see your spouse or your kids doing work and you want to help them, but you want to stay on the couch, but you giving up that comfort for the sake of Christ. It also means perhaps not being able to participate on certain things on the Sabbath because you want to keep this day holy. And it is a sacrifice. Why? For the sake of Christ. That's the key. When you want to forgive someone, but it's so hard, but for the sake of Christ and his forgiveness towards you, you forgive others. You love your enemies for the sake of Christ. Isn't that what Paul's talking about here? The sacrifices that we make, whether it be persecution in whatever form it might be, for Christ's sake. And suffering will come with it. It might come financially. It might be giving up that vacation. It might be being faced with radical ISIS adherence, as many Christians are. But it's all for the sake of Christ. That's the important thing. So will you follow him? Will you follow Christ through whatever suffering comes your way? Whatever act of sacrifice the Holy Spirit is calling you to do for your wife, for your husband, for your co-worker? Because you already have all things. And what I love about the way that Jesus expresses this is he doesn't force us to undergo this suffering. He doesn't coerce us. If you think about it, you know, R.C. Sproul, he once wrote, Jesus is not like the general who tells his troops to charge into an enemy machine gun while he seats comfortably in a bomb shelter. He says, no. Jesus has gone before us. He was the sheep who was slaughtered. He was killed in a way that we can never be killed. He suffered in a way that we can never taste. And he drank a cup that we will never drink. He goes before us and he underwent the suffering for the sake of the gospel. And he embodies this truth that you and I have to believe. That when you and I become more like Christ... He leads the way in suffering and tribulation. And you being loved by God and that suffering, they're not mutually exclusive. They go together because it's for the sake of Christ. 
So as he wraps these things up, Paul says, now here's the climax, verse 37, no, no death, no tribulation, no persecution, no nothing. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present or things to come, nor powers or height or death can separate us from the love of Christ. I want us to end with this third point, and what I'm going to do now is to explain what Paul means here by being more than conquerors in all these things. And I want us to see this inseparable love that God has for us. So here... Let's think about what it means to be more than conquerors. We know what it means to conquer someone. We know what it means to win, to have victory, the way that Christ has victory over sin and death, for example. And so we get that much. But what does it mean to be more than a conqueror? If you look at the original Greek language, it's actually one word. And you can literally translate it as hyper-victory. Hyper winning or super winning. So how do you super win someone? In a match, isn't a win a win, whether it be one point or however many points? And I think what Paul is getting at is two things. And the first thing is, I think you can super win if you go into a battle knowing already the victory that is yours. As you enter this match, as you enter this competition, you already know that you've won. And if that's the case, the way that you participate in that battle is very different from the way that you will participate if you're unsure what the outcome is going to be like. And in that way, you can be a super conqueror in all these things that come before you because you know that Christ has already won. And if you're in Christ, you've already won, whether it be sin or death or anything that Satan throws at you. So the manner in which you can face these things, you know you're going to win. You know, I love preaching at youth group retreats. And one of the reasons why is because of basketball. I guess second to preaching the gospel, that, that stays up there. But, you know, at the end of the final night, they always play basketball. And I always play uh, with the sixth graders. And the reason being is, I know that there is no sixth grader in the world that can beat me. I can hold on to that promise very securely. And knowing that promise, how am I going to play basketball? There's a little swagger in my dribble, right? Every time I shoot the ball, my hands stay up in the air for one and a half more seconds. Because I know I won. It doesn't matter what they do. And isn't that a super victory? It's not just winning, but winning in a confident way. And that's the kind of victory that we have in Christ. Why? Because we know the outcome. Remember, glorified, past tense. That's how we can have super victory. And the second way, and I think this is what the heart of what Paul is getting at. The second meaning of being more than a conqueror is whatever the opposition, whatever Satan, whatever your guilt, whatever this world throws at you, it will ultimately be serving your victory. It will ultimately be used for the victory that is already yours. I can think of judo or hapkido, where their energy towards you, you redirect their movements and their energy and you beat them 
using their own strength, that's super victory. They're defeating themselves. And remember, this is the context for the Roman Christians. The world, Satan, the government is throwing everything at them. But the historical fact is, for the Roman Christians, for the early church at that time, it grew crazily. It grew amazingly. Track with me. Acts chapter 1. About 120 Christians. About 5,000 Christians when Peter gave his first sermon. By Acts 21, many thousands became Christians. By the end of the 4th century, a conservative estimate says anywhere from 5 to 7.5 million Christians throughout the empire. That's more than half of Rome's population. And to think how a handful of adherents grew exponentially to millions in a matter of hundreds of years, that's still the question between Christian and non-Christian scholars. How does that happen? They studied the social aspects of it, the psychological aspects of it, the economic reasons for it. But there's nothing like that in this world that grew in this way. You know, Rodney Stark, he's a church historian, he studies this and he investigates. And he comes up with a lot of these theories. And one thing that he knows, notices about religion is when it comes to anything religious, you know, rational people, they're willing to give up money, time, perhaps to social service even observe strict norms governing sex and marriage because of their religion. And we see this, don't we, all the time in the world, around the world. In Asia, a lot of the times you'll go to temples and you see parents praying and giving sacrifices so that their children can pass their college exams. So they'll give up something to obtain something else in this life. But the thing about Christianity is, that the amount of persecution, the amount of Christians who are killed for their faith, it doesn't rationally make sense why they would willingly die for their faith. Because in this lifetime, there's nothing to obtain. It doesn't make sense rationally. And he says, that's the very thing that gave credibility to Rome. That when these Christian martyrs were being put to death, Not only were they voluntarily dying for their faith, they did it with a smile. And as a non-Christian, if you witness something like that, you're going to question and wonder, who is this Jesus that's making them face this death in this way? It at least raises that question. And he writes, martyrs are the most credible exponents of the value of a religion. And if there is some voluntary aspect to their martyrdom, what is it about this Jesus that allows believers to not only face death, but face death with a grin? That's why the church father, Tertullian, he says that the blood of the martyrs were the seeds of the church. So the persecution, the famines, the nakedness, the slaughtering of sheep, all of that the attacks of the enemy were being used to bring about literally hundreds of thousands and millions of Christians to faith. Do you see the good in that? And do you see how Satan's tactics were being used by God to bring about his glory and the good of all those thousands of people who never knew Christ? That's one example that we see. I wish the Roman Christians knew that when Paul was writing this letter. 
You know, there's many examples throughout the world how Satan might throw everything at you, but God will ultimately use them for good and glory. This is my favorite one. You know, in, in seminary recently, I did this research paper on this missionary who went to uh, East Asia. He's a very uh, well-known person. He wrote this tome, this huge book, and it's like the definitive book on spiritual warfare and demon possessions. And he wrote this book, and as he was encountering various villages, he once encountered this one family who was being attacked spiritually uh, by Satan and his minions, some of them demon-possessed. And so he would grant their request, and he would go, that he would pray for them, and he would preach the gospel to them, And by God's grace, they all came to believe in the gospel. And as a result, the evil spirit left that house. And do you know where they went? I guess it makes sense. The the house next door, the closest thing. So I occupied that house. And you know what happened later? The people in that house came to this missionary and said, can you come and help us and pray for us because we're being attacked? So he goes to this next house, prays for them, preaches the gospel. They came to faith. Do you know what happens next? They go to the next house. At the end of his journal entry, you know what happened? The whole village came to Christ. Do you see how God uses even the evil in this world for his good? It happens all the time. I'm wondering how it's going to happen in your life. I'm very curious to know. We'll have heaven to talk about it, right? God works for the good of those who love him, loves us inseparably, and even all that's thrown at you will be used for that good. Brothers and sisters, may this show you that behind all these things, whatever you're facing, God's love for you is tangible. It is real. It's real in the sacrifices that I know you are making for the sake of Christ. Nothing can separate his love for you. No tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or so not even yourself. You can't get yourself out of his grasp. For me, there's this deep sense, this deep security that no matter what happens in my life, even if I try to run away from God, I can plant myself in this love of God that will bring me back. I can give many examples of my life when I tried to run. I think I shared that with the kids when I went to Australia, and the next day I took a plane back home. God's love is secure, and nothing can separate us from the love of God. So far, we've been studying so many great truths of the Bible, haven't we? Justification, adoption, the Holy Spirit's intercession for us, the security of our glorification, and these are all great things that we can praise the Lord for. But at this climax, Paul's saying, you know what's behind all these things? It's his love, his love for you, a love that cannot be separated from you, and that is far greater than anything that you could ever want in this lifetime. If you're like me, a lot of the times my prayers and my requests are, God, help me with this. Get me out of this situation or grant me this. And sure, those things might bring me temporary pleasure and satisfaction, but isn't it far greater to have God's love? 
Isn't it better to have his love more than the guarantee of this one thing or this one situation? That's far greater. You have that already secure. I think Joanna reminded me of this. It's better to have love than the guaranteed outcome of something. You guys know that when we first dated, it wasn't much before we actually got married. I met her in July, got engaged in October, and got married in January, I think six months or so. And our second date, first and second date, was over Skype. And because of the time limitations, and half of the time we weren't even in the same country, uh, I blame the time restriction, but I wasn't romantic at all. Uh, My second Skype conversation, I expressed uh, my desires to go overseas. And I said, you know, I want to just cut to the chase. Um, If you don't think this is something that you'd be open to doing, I probably don't want to lead you on right now. And and as I was sharing this, I was very nervous because I very much liked her and I wanted to convince her. So I was saying, you know, as hard as it might be, uh, the language is similar enough to Korean that, you know, you'll get it very quick. And and Sif felt like, you know, the, the food might be exotic to you, but you like spicy food, so I think you'll be okay there. So I was trying to guarantee all of these outcomes, right? And not to be sappy, and to her credit, she says, Luke, you don't need to guarantee anything as long as you guarantee that you'll love me in that place. That's all I need. And that was a reminder. What are you praying for? For the outcome of this? For God to grant you this? Isn't it far greater to know that he loves you and everything that comes your way is because he's graciously given you all good things. I'd rather have that. Let's pray.